Well, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn with me to Ruth chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4. We come to the end of this amazing story. Last time we were together, we just we, we started chapter 4, and we just had to get Boaz and Ruth married. So they, remember the transaction with the sandal? Uh, they were officially married. It was uh, declared that that transaction had happened. And now we just get to reap the benefits of everything that God has done in this book thus far. But as we come to the end of this book, these last few sections remind me of a moment that I had in the middle of an escape room with my mom. I don't know if you guys have been in escape rooms. Um, First time I went, I realized we're paying somebody to lock us in a room. (laughs) That seems like a strange transaction, but we did it. Uh, Escape rooms are my mom's love language. She just adores these things. They're so much fun, and we love problem solving together. Uh, If you don't know what an escape room is, it really is. You pay somebody to lock you in a room with all these clues, and you have to figure out how the clues work together and then get out according to what the clues would say. And my mom and I, being the competitive people that we are, you're on a time limit. You have an hour to do it, and we figured we're going to do this better than anybody has ever done this before. Uh, We're the Carmichaels, and we're going to get this thing done in about two minutes flat, right? We're good. So we do one room. We're, We're solid on one room. We realize there's a second room. There's a third room. Nobody told us this. <laughs> There's more rooms after the first. We thought we did it. We're good. But I'll never forget, in the, in the first room, we got this little item, and we tried to figure out. It was, it was kind of like a key. Where does this fit? Do we fit it into something and turn it? Does it get us out of this room? Does it get us out of this game? What are we doing with this piece? And we just kind of looked at each other, and we looked at it, and we go, we know this is for something, but we don't know what. But this is not just a, a, a piece It was left just junk and trash in this room. This is for something. It's going to accomplish something. We just have to wait and see what it is. We held on to it, and sure enough, it's like this little red translucent dragon thing. Sure enough, that was the key at the very end of the escape room that opened the last door and let us out. And I, I just, I think that we, if we're honest, we do the exact same things with our own lives. We look at ourselves as if we were that little key. Okay, God, I know that that my life is for something. And even with the messes and the chaos and the suffering and the sorrows, God, I know you're doing something. I just don't know what it is. Are you going to use this for a good purpose ultimately? We know the promises in Scripture, but what are you actually going to do in my life? What are you actually going to use this for? I think at the end of the book of Ruth, we see an amazing picture of, of one woman's life from the beginning of what transpired in chaos and in suffering to the end where God's going to tell us something that he didn't even tell Naomi in her lifetime. God's going to tell us this is what it was all for. This is the purpose of everything that went on. And you and I are included in that purpose and therefore you and I can trace back in our own lives and see, okay, God's doing something. No suffering is ever wasted. No trial is ever unused by God. He's doing something. So, let's read these verses, verse 9 through verse 22, and we will see how far we get in our time together. Verse 9, right after the 
uh, sandal has been removed and the transaction has happened. Verse 9, Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You all are my witnesses today. All the people who were there in the court and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And the woman said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today, and may his name become famous in all of Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram. To Ram, Aminadab. And to Aminadab was born Nishan, and Nishan, Salmon. And Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz was born Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, David. Father, as we come to the end of this amazing book, and we're going to need two Sundays to finish this, you in your unbelievable grace are showing us that no suffering is ever wasted, and that no trial ever goes unused by you. And that even in the valley of the shadow of death, you are with us and you are a restorer of life. And Naomi got to see a taste of that with a child on her lap. But we get to see the fruition of that with this beautiful genealogy. So Father, I pray that you would give us a bigger vision of who you are and what you're doing in our lives. Sometimes we just wonder, what am I here for? I know I have a purpose, but what is it? And what are you doing in my life? And God, I pray that we would walk away this morning realizing maybe we won't know everything, just like Naomi did not know everything you were accomplishing through her story. But we can trust that you, who are writing the story for us, you have a perfect plan for our lives. Yes, it includes chaos. Yes, it includes sorrow and suffering. But you are writing a story in which we are being used by you to do things that we could not even comprehend. So give us faith this morning to believe that. God, may we, may we walk away from here just feeling small, 
that your plan is so much bigger than we thought it was. And make, make us, as we walk away from here, to feel big that we play an amazing part in your plan of redemption. Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law this morning. We pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to split this text up into three sections. You'll kind of see the three sections that are there. We have a prayer, we have a pregnancy, and we have a post-credits scene. So we've got a prayer, we've got a pregnancy, we've got a post-credits scene. Let's start with the prayer in verses 9 through 12. After the transaction, Boaz just declares what had happened. Verse 9, Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses today. I've bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. So I've bought everything. I've got it all. I've bought it. I'm going to give it right back to them. I have redeemed their property. He starts with that statement, but he doesn't end there. And he uses a word in the text. My Bible says, moreover, more than that. Like this is, this is a good thing. I got the property, but more than that, there's something that I wanted that was even better. And notice what he says. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth. She's the one that I've wanted. And I have acquired her, and through her, even though she's the widow of Malon, she's going to be my wife. She's going to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You all are my witnesses today. So even in his love for Ruth, he's still selfless, in the way he says, I have acquired her as my wife, not only because I love her, but because I want to do something selfless in keeping the lineage of Elimelech and Malon through uh, Ruth. I want to make sure their name never dies. I want to make sure that their name, I'm fine with my name dying, I want to make sure their name never dies. This, by the way, we've said it multiple times about biblical manhood, biblical womanhood, but if you want a good marriage, let it start with selflessness. Let it start with selflessness. He says, what I want more than anything is for Ruth's well-being and Naomi's well-being to be accomplished. That's what I want more than anything in the world. I want that. Selflessness in marriage will always make an amazing marriage. So start with that and don't ever stop being selfless. So he says that. All the people, verse 11. Say, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the women who are coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. But you can see they say, may the Lord. We are witnesses. We've seen everything. This transaction is successful. But then they say, may the Lord, which is the beginning of a prayer. That's why I said this is a prayer. And there's two aspects of this, this prayer, verse 11 and verse 12. They say, may the Lord... So may Yahweh make the woman who is coming into your home, that sounds a little technical, she's coming into your home, but that just means the woman who's going to become your wife. Uh, you remember this was the culture back in the day in Judaism, the husband would go away, would make a home, would prepare a place, and then would come back and take his bride and bring her back to the home that he prepared. That's what Jesus is doing with us, right? He's betrothed to us through the cross and the resurrection, and he has gone away to prepare a place for us, and then he's going to come back and take us to be with him, consummate the marriage, and we are officially married at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So that's what's happening with Jesus, with the church. That's what's happening here. May the woman who's coming into your house, that just means married, may she, the woman that you're going to marry. Notice what they say. May God make her like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. 
This is staggering to hear what they're saying because they're saying Rachel and Leah who built the house of Israel, right? Made the 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. They say, may Ruth be like those two women. May a Moabite Gentile from a pagan foreign nation, may she be as famous and as profitable in the name of Israel as Rachel and Leah. And they say, May you, Boaz, achieve wealth in Ephrathah. May you achieve wealth. That's the same word back in uh, chapter 2 and 3, talking about Boaz's character and Ruth's character, excellent character, total well-being and success in who they are and in what they do. So achieve wealth, you could also translate it, uh, make powerful, uh, just be successful, be prosperous in everything you're doing. And then become famous in Bethlehem. Uh, literally in Hebrew, and may they call a name in Bethlehem. Boaz, may your name just be resounding in Bethlehem. Which, that's, a, that's another staggering prayer, because he just said, I have married this woman so that my name will cease, and Malon's name will continue, and Elimelech's name will continue. And they say, no, no, no your name needs to continue. And sure enough, his name is going to continue. We don't really read of Malon and Kilion much, but we know the name Boaz. So they pray, may you be prosperous. May everything that you're trying to accomplish happen. May you have total well-being and success. May you be famous. May your name for what you've done in your selflessness be known. And then they say, verse 12, Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar, Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. So this is a, this is an important prayer. They say, may God bless you with kids. And the reason, number one, why that's important is because if you remember, Ruth was married to Malon for 10 years and they could not have children. She was barren for 10 years. And so they pray, may God open your womb and may you bear a child. But it's very interesting that they throw in the name Perez, Tamar, and Judah. Why do they throw in the name Perez and Tamar? You have to go back to Genesis 38 to see this. We don't have time to do this, but if you remember, uh, Judah uh, has kids, and through Judah's lineage, the Messiah was prophesied to come through Judah's lineage. He has kids, and his kids get married, and uh, the Leveret marriage that we discussed um, one is married to this woman, Tamar, and he dies, and the next one dies, and the next one dies. And so he says, no, 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 no more kids. I don't want any more of my kids marrying this woman because I think it's the woman that's killing them all off. I don't want anybody marrying Tamar. But Tamar says, no, no, there's supposed to be this thing called leveret marriage. We're not to let the name die. This is that whole weird story of Onan. Strange stuff goes on with him. God actually kills Onan for not doing what he was supposed to do and carrying on the lineage. So Tamar takes things into her own hands. She, she takes matters into her own hands. She hears that Judah's going on a trip. She dresses like a prostitute. Judah visits her as a prostitute, not knowing that it's his daughter-in-law. And they end up conceiving a child, and the child's name is Perez. It's a crazy story. Messed up story. Judah is not looked upon favorably for doing what he did. Tamar, it's pretty strange, pretty interesting. So why include this story? 
It's almost like as the celebration of the wedding is happening, wedding bells are ringing, and somebody says, hey, I hope you guys are like Tamar and Perez. And people are like, oh, no, don't bring that up. Like, this, is a, this is weird. I want to give you three reasons why this is fundamental to what God's accomplishing. Number one, both the Tamar Perez Judah story and Ruth in spirit are a levirate marriage issue. Tamar said, this name, the name of my deceased husband cannot die, and therefore I need my deceased husband's brothers to perform the duty of giving me kids. They would not. God killed one who did not. And then Judah said, none of my kids are going after her anymore. And so Judah ultimately is the one who bears this son and fulfills this levirate marriage by himself with Tamar. Ruth is in the same boat. Again, I don't think it's a levirate marriage, but it's the spirit of the law of the levirate marriage that Ruth's husband passed away and the name of Elimelech and Malon can't die. So Boaz says, I will raise up a son to fulfill that name. Secondly, I think more importantly than number one, Ruth and Tamar are both non-Israelite people. So these, these people looking on are saying, I remember something like this in the Old Testament. I remember something like this in our history where God worked an amazing, weird wonder through a non-Israelite person to bring about the lineage of the Messiah, the lineage of the chosen one that's going to come. And so I don't know what God's doing here with, with Ruth and with Boaz, but may he do something just as special because Boaz, you're marrying a Gentile woman, just like Judah had a Gentile woman give birth to his son. Third, and I think even more important than point number two, is the reference to Judah and Tamar links Boaz and Ruth with the family that Jacob blessed in Genesis 49. When Jacob said, through the line of Judah, the Messiah is going to come, the scepter is not going to depart. They're hearkening back by saying Judah, and I think that's just a, a little Easter egg for us in this moment. Judah. Do you remember what Judah is? Do you remember who Judah is? Do you remember what the tribe's supposed to do? Do you, know, you remember who is going to come from the lineage of Judah? I think ears would perk up. Well, the Messiah's involved in this. So they say, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring by which the Lord is going to give to you by this young woman. Three amazing prayers of blessing. Ruth, to Ruth, may God give Ruth a foundational role in the people of God. To Boaz, may you have a kingly lineage, a regal uh, dynasty. And to the family as a whole, there's a connection between Ruth and Tamar, non-Jews, to bear the lineage of the Messiah through that line of Judah and Perez. By the way, before we end point number one here, the book of Ruth is filled with several different prayers, and every single prayer that is prayed in the book of Ruth is answered with a yes. Every single prayer, you can go back to it, every single prayer that is prayed in the book of Ruth is answered with a yes. No one can walk away from Ruth, this book, thinking that God does not hear or answer our prayers. So why do we doubt God's providential care in our own lives. God has a plan. He's working that out in our lives just the way that he did in the book of Ruth. So number one, we see a prayer. Number two, we see a pregnancy. Verses 13 through 17. We see a pregnancy. 
So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. It says that Boaz took Ruth. That means that she took her in marriage. So why then does it say took Ruth and she became his wife? That's redundant. You don't need to say that. The Hebrew expression, Boaz took Ruth, means Boaz married Ruth. But I think this is a beautiful... uh, The the, the author, if, if it is Samuel, the author here has been and will continue to be amazingly beautiful and poetic in what he's saying. And here he says, technically, in a very black and white technical sense, in a formulaic sense, Boaz and Ruth are married. But then he said, she became his wife. Why? Why does it say that? Because thus far, Ruth had only ever been known as a Moabitess, a foreigner, or the servant of Boaz. This is the first time that we see her status changing to something altogether so wonderful. There's no way she could have ever imagined it happening. She is his wife. But you can't help but notice in verse 13 how quickly this dramatic story comes to a close. In 29 words, two sentences, you have a wedding, you have a honeymoon, you have a home established, you have a marriage consummated, you have a baby conceived, and you have nine months of anticipation and a healthy boy delivered. At least nine months of history, probably a little bit more than that, just shoved into one verse. Why that fast? Well, if you remember, if you go back to the first five verses of this book, there was a whole lot of life that was lived that was sorrowful. There was a whole lot of despair and loss. And then here in just one verse, we have a whole lot of blessing being poured out. Again, beautiful literary structures, the way Samuel is saying, look, in the beginning, a lot was taken away in an instant. A lot can be lost in a moment. It doesn't take very long for your whole world to fall apart. But you know what? Equally, the same God who takes away also gives. And it doesn't take him long at all to bless. So, she, she's married to Boaz Middle of verse 13, the Lord enabled her to conceive. This is really important because, again, Ruth had been married before to Malon for 10 years without having children. Is she going to be able to conceive? That's the question. And so just to remind the reader that this natural event of pregnancy was planned by God, we are told not just that Ruth conceived, but also that God was the one who gave her conception. God gave her conception. And by the way, this is very interesting in the book of Ruth because there are only two times in the book of Ruth where we see God's name actively involved in something happening. Chapter 1, verse 6, uh, Naomi hears that God had visited his people by giving them uh, a harvest. And here, God, Yahweh, has visited his people specifically by giving Ruth the ability to conceive. Those are the only two times that we see God's active involvement which has been the whole point of the book of Ruth, right? It just so happened that this happened. Well, was God involved? Absolutely God was involved. But sometimes we don't see his active involvement. Here, the author wants you to to know without a shadow of a doubt, no, no, God's actively involved in this. By the way, that's so helpful for us. Um, I know that there's people even in this church 
that have struggled trying to conceive. God is the one who opens and closes the womb. God's the one who is behind that. And if God gives you the gracious gift of conception, praise the Lord. It's helpful for for those of us who have children to remember that children were a gift from God. They weren't just a natural byproduct of things that we do. They're a a precious gift from God. when, when, When your kids are spilling orange juice for the fifth time in the span of three hours in the morning, to remember, no, this is a precious gift from the Lord. This is an impossible miracle if it weren't for God doing it. It helps us be grateful for it. I love the way Isaac Watts says it in one of his hymns. Oh, bless the Lord, my soul, nor let his mercies lie forgotten in unthankfulness and without praises die. Without thankfulness and without praise, we forget what God has done and those amazing blessings just die. So it helps us praise the Lord for the blessing that he's given. But it also reminds us that if he hasn't yet given you that blessing, It's in his hands. It's in his timing. And the God who opens the womb sometimes closes the womb and sometimes opens it back up. Look at Ruth, 10 years unable to conceive. And then instantly God says, you're going to have a son. Trust the Lord as he's working in you and through you for his perfect plan and in his perfect timing. So we have a lot just shoved into verse 13. Then, verse 14, the women said to Naomi, these are probably the same women that talked to her when she came home from Moab. And they're excited, blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. And may his name become famous in Israel. It's very interesting, the his name, we don't really know who the his is there. Is it God's name or the Redeemer's name? It could be Boaz because he's the Redeemer. It also could be God because he's the one who is supposed to be blessed. It also could be Obed that we're going to find out is the name of the son that Ruth and Boaz have because he is going to be this Redeemer for Naomi. Who is it? I actually think it's probably Obed because you'll see as we continue that it more than likely goes to him. But they all three, God, Boaz, and Obed, are all doing some aspect of redemption here. So may God's name be blessed And may the Redeemer, who God has given to you, become famous in Israel. Verse 15, may he also be to you a restorer of life. That word restore, to to, to bring back what you have lost, to restore what has been taken away. It's the same word in Psalm 23, that the Lord restoreth my soul. May he restore you and, and be a sustainer of your old age because... Your daughter-in-law, again, no longer called Ruth the outsider. She's Ruth the daughter-in-law. She's been brought into the family. Who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. So birth to him, that's Obed. So you could probably put Obed all the way back through the hymns and the he's. The women said, verse 14, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. And may Obed's name become famous in Israel. May Obed also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Your daughter-in-law who loves you. This is the only time that we see the word love in this book. And it's not God to his people, even even though we know that's true. It's not even Boaz to Ruth. This is a love story between Boaz and Ruth, but it's not even the love that Boaz has for Ruth. 
It's the love that Ruth has for Naomi. Go all the way back to chapter 1 where she says, your people, my people, your God, my God, I am with you even when you die. I'm going to stay where you are and I'm going to be buried right next to you. That is covenant-keeping love. That is the kind of love that we've talked about, is a love with no exit strategy and no obligation. I love you because I choose to love you, and I will not quit on that love. And she is better, the women say, than seven sons. Naomi had lost two sons, and there's no way to replace the two sons that you lost. That's not what they're saying. What they're saying is what the two sons were going to do in taking care of you in your old age, Ruth can do it all and even better. Why? Because she has given birth to one boy and notice their confident assurance that Naomi will be well taken care of in her old age is because of Ruth being Obed's mom. Ruth, since you are Obed's mom, I know you're going to train him to take care of his family well. You are going to teach your son to honor his grandma. You're going to teach your son to take care of his grandma. He's going to be restored to you in your old age. He's going to sustain you in your old age because Ruth, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, is his mom. We can bank on Obed being a great dude, because Ruth is an amazing, godly woman. Then, Naomi took the child. Again, beautiful, literary, poetic language here. Because if you remember back in chapter 1, Naomi describes the loss of her two sons, and she does not use the word sons. She used the word, the word for babies. Same word here, baby, took the baby. Yeled is the Hebrew word for baby. Yeledim is the plural. So she says, I've lost my Yeledim. I've lost my babies. Even though they're older, they're, they're grown, they have uh, families, have wives. She says, I've lost my Yeledim. And here, the author of Ruth says, Naomi took the Yeled. She takes the little baby. And she lays him in her lap. She becomes his nurse. That's not the word for like uh, uh, legally adopting him or, or doing something strange like that. It's just nanny. It's a, it's a caregiver. It's somebody that's just a guardian that's going to watch over him. She's going to be to him what the grandmother in 2 Timothy is described as being to Timothy, leading Timothy to a place of salvation. Naomi's going to have stories to tell little Obed. And so she lays him on her lap. And the neighbor women see, they come around side, they give him a name. If this is actually naming him, it's the only recorded time in the Old Testament that that, that actually happens. So most people would say that they're either suggesting a name, and she says, oh, I like that name, or that she's already named him this, and they're affirming that name. But either way, they say, you have a son born to you. It's very interesting. A son has been born to Naomi. No, no, no. A son's been born to Boaz and Ruth. Why bring it back to Naomi? So spotlight, so focused. We're going to get to that in just a second. They say his name is Obed. Obed, it means servant or worker. Uh, it's short for Obadiah. You guys know the name Obadiah, the prophet? means servant of Yahweh. Obadiah, it's the servant of Yahweh, the one who serves God. 
So this is Obed, the servant. He's a worker. He's going to do exactly what God has made him to do. He's going to work and serve exactly the way that God has made him to work and to serve. He's going to serve Naomi. They name him Obed. In these closing verses, Ruth and Boaz just completely disappear. They're gone. If Samuel's writing this, all Samuel does is say, they got married, now let's move on to the good stuff. And they move over back to Naomi, completely off of Boaz, completely off of Ruth. The final scene here is about Naomi. And if you're like me, that you're kind of taken aback by this. You would think that it would say, and Boaz and Ruth had a child, and they all lived happily ever after. But no, here we go back to Naomi, even so much as to say she's the one who had this son. Why? Well, number one, the ending of every chapter going back to Naomi is the pattern of this book. If you remember, at the end of chapter one, it goes back to Naomi. God has dealt bitterly with me. I went out full. I've come back empty. End of chapter two, this is a good thing. We know that Elimelech, you, Ruth, you are in Elimelech's field. This is good. Wait, let's hang on. Something awesome is going to happen. End of chapter three, this is great. He has promised to uh, take care of you. He's going to go talk to the elders tomorrow. Let's wait. We can sit still and be patient because he's going to make this thing happen. And here at the end of chapter four, again, it goes back to Naomi. Why does it go back to her? Every single chapter, it goes back to her. Here's the reason why. The author of the book of Ruth wants you to know that the Lord has never once forgotten or forsaken Naomi, and he will never once forget you or forsake you. This book is meant to convince us that God is not only sovereign, but that he is kind in his sovereignty. He's never going to let you go through a, a trial or suffering and just say, I'm out. Good luck on your own. If the Lord is your shepherd, Psalm 23 says that he is with you in the valley of the shadow of death. And God has been working through all of these hard days, not only for Naomi, but also for his family and also for the whole people of Israel and for you and me as well. So he has to go back to, I, I never once left Naomi. I think we could say it this way. God, in this book, is preoccupied with Naomi's welfare. He always goes back to, yeah, I mean, we've got a, a book here about Ruth and Boaz, and it's really sweet, and it's a love story. That's great. But what about Naomi? He's always taking us back to Naomi. And we kind of go, that's great, but what about Ruth and Boaz? We want to hear what's going on there. And he says, no, what I want you to see is I'm preoccupied with this woman. She's a widow. She's lost everything. And to you and to me, she might not even seem like the most important person in this book. And yet God says, she's the one that I always want you to care about. I always want you to go back to. I don't want you to forget her because I'm not forgetting her. He is fixated on her. She is never absent from God's mind. And just when you think the story's over, and we're going to just zero in on Boaz and Ruth kissing, and you got little Obed next to them, and the movie ends... God says, no, 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 go back to Naomi. Brothers and sisters, you are never outside of God's fixated purposes, plans, and mind. He knows exactly what he's doing with you. He loves you. He's preoccupied with you the exact same way that he's preoccupied with Naomi. 
And if there were a story that were to be written about your life, and maybe you seem to not even be the most important character in that story, the book isn't even named after you, God says, you are not insignificant to me. You're not insignificant to me. But the story doesn't even end there. End of verse 17. They name him Obed, and he is the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is when the story just hit a wow factor for everybody reading it. We just had a beautiful story about Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, and now we have a son. This is amazing. But for the author to connect that that son is the grandfather of David, go back to the beginning. This is the time in the book of Judges. This is in the period of the Judges where there is no king in Israel. And then David's going to be the greatest king in Israel. We end, again, beautiful. This is just one of the most beautiful books written. We begin with no king, and we end with the hope of there's going to be an amazing king that's going to show up on the scene. There's an amazing king. His name's David. The very first name in the entire book, Elimelech, is my God is king, but he dies. Where is the king going to be? God says, I'm not going to leave my people without a king. So we have a prayer, we have a pregnancy. God provides not only a child for Ruth and for Boaz, God provides, number two, not only a redeemer for Naomi, but God provides, number three, a king for Israel and a day and a time when there was no king in Israel. Now, we could end there and be blown away. But this is where, though the movie has ended and the credits are rolling, don't get out of your seats yet. Because there's a, there's a scene at the end of the movie. There's a post-credit scene. And this is what verses 18 through 22 tell us. It seems like a really weird way to end this story. But it's a magnificent way to end the story. Why all these names? Go to a genealogy. I mean, you, you just told one of the best stories in the entire Bible and you end with that long list of names that's so boring that we just tend to skip over them when we're doing our daily Bible reading. And you end the story that way. This is just a terrible idea, Samuel. No, it's not. It's an amazing idea. Let me give you a couple reasons why. Why all these names? Why this genealogy? Number one, it proves that this is historically true. You can go back and historically look at these names and I was going to do an entire sermon just on verses 18 through 22 because I want to go back and show you all these people. Uh, we're not going to do that because I'm just going to finish this out right now. But if you were to go back, you can look at some of these people. Some we don't even know who they are or what they did. But most of these, we can see what they were doing, who they were. The bottom line is this shows us a historical record, an account that is historically true. There's an amazing story about a um, missionary who went to a uh, a people group that he was trying to translate the Bible into their language and show them Jesus. So he started with the book of Matthew because he wanted to show them Christ. And he decided, I'm not going to translate the genealogies because that's really weird to start off with, hey, I've got this awesome book and it's just a list of names. So he, he started into like Jesus being born, chapter two, wise men, magi, all those different things. So goes on and gives them that. And then he decides, I'll finish this at the end. He finishes translating it and, and is going to hand them the rest of the book, in the opening chapter. The whole time, the people are very skeptical of this man named Jesus. They haven't really believed in him. They thought he was a cool dude, but not really who he claimed to be. 
And then he gives them this last translation, and they ask him to read it. And as he's reading these names that are at the beginning of chapter 1 of Matthew, just a genealogical record, he's reading the names, and they start weeping. And he says, it's just a, it's just a bunch of names. What's the big deal? And the chief stands up and says, up until hearing those names, we thought all this was made up. We thought everything was a fun fairy tale. But now that you've given us a list of names, he says, only real people list out the names of their grandfather, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather. Only true stories have lists of names in them. And you've given us a list of names. This story's true. The whole village turns to Christ and believes in him for salvation. So it's historically true. Secondly, it gives us literary genius. The opening of this book, we have 10 years of barrenness, and the end of the book, we have 10 generations, 10 names listed here. Just beautiful literary genius to show us the opening of the book, 10 uh, years of barrenness, the close of the book, 10 men listed here, 10 generations. And it's beautifully written. Five belong to the 430 years of sojourning in Egypt uh, to the Exodus. Five names belong after that, 476 years between Exodus and the death of David. So it's perfectly symmetrical. That's amazing. Number three, not only it's historical reliability, literary genius. Number three, God uses messy people. This list shows us that God uses messy people. He, he starts with the Perez account. Perez We don't have to go back to the Tamar and and Judah and Perez story, but that was a messy situation. Um, Some of these other people, uh, Aminadab was the father of Aaron's wife in Exodus 6, verse 23. Nashon was the brother-in-law of Aaron. Uh, He was the leader during the wilderness wanderings. There's a lot of other people in here, but drop down to, to Salmon. Salmon sometimes referred to as Salma in 1 Chronicles 2, verse 10. He is the father of Boaz. And does anybody remember who Salmon was married to? He's married to Rahab. By the way, why would Boaz be totally fine marrying a Gentile woman? Because his mom was a Gentile woman. His mom was Rahab, used to be a prostitute. That was her occupation. And God saved her. And God brought her into this list of genealogical records that we're going to see in Matthew chapter 1. This is unbelievable. And it shows us, oh, that makes sense. Boaz is not afraid to raise a son from a Jew and a Gentile put together because that's exactly who he is. God is not afraid to use messy people. In fact, uh, Ruth, who is the Moabite Gentile, in becoming the great-grandmother of King David, she probably held him. She probably put King David on her lap and told stories of everything that had transpired to bring them to the place where they are now. Finally, in number four, and we will end here, this list of names reveals God's ultimate redemption. It reveals God's ultimate redemption. This is why I say we need one more sermon to round out Ruth and to go back all the way through and just kind of see the lessons learned. So we'll do that next Sunday. But just for now, you can see Perez is through the lineage of Judah. He's the son of Judah. So we've got the lineage of the Messiah from Israel, Abraham, Judah. And then we have David. 
of David. So we know in the Davidic covenant that the, the king's going to come, the Messiah's going to come through David. So we know that the Messiah can now come through the line of David because of everything that's transpired in this book. We find out that the purpose of Ruth wasn't just for Ruth, wasn't just for Naomi, wasn't just for Boaz, wasn't just for Obed, wasn't even just for David or even Israel as a whole. The book of Ruth is about you and about me. If we don't have an immigration to Moab, we have no return of Ruth. If we have no return of Ruth, we have no marriage to Boaz. If we have no marriage to Boaz, we have no Obed. If we have no Obed, we have no Jesse. If we have no Jesse, we have no David. If we have no David, we have no Messiah. If we have no Messiah, we have no hope of being saved. And whoever would have thought that that would have happened? Because Naomi decided to go with Elimelech to a land called Moab because there was a famine in Bethlehem. Whoever would have thought that that one decision would have brought about the plan of salvation for you and for me? That's what we're going to pick it up next week. But just for this morning, I just I want to encourage you that the plan that God has for you and for me, Naomi would never have known this. Ruth could never have known this. The plan that God has for you and for me, you and I could never even fathom it. That's why people tell me all the time, I think heaven's going to be boring. I'm afraid to go to heaven for all of eternity because it's going to be boring. We are going to need all of eternity to figure out things like this. When you decided to stop at the grocery store, and talk to somebody that you didn't know and share the gospel with them or give them a tract because you were running out of time. And that person gets saved and who knows how that person helps somebody else and how that person helps somebody else and who knows what God's going to do. But the amazing thing about this list of names is your name and my name fit in here if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. These are our people. We're a bunch of messy sinners that God has redeemed through the Messiah. Father, we thank you so much for your amazing grace. Thank you for our uh, precious time that we've had studying this book. And God, I pray that we would walk out of here confident and excited about your plan for us. Man, it seems so often like we're, we're just holding, holding that little trinket, that little piece of of our lives wondering, is this for something? This has to be used for something. I don't know what the purpose of this is. And God, maybe in this life, like we've seen Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, maybe in this life we'll never know. But we know that it's not purposeless. And if we can just hang on to a good, sovereign, kind God and trust you, oh, we see your trustworthiness on display in this book. We can trust you. And if we would do that this day, you would work wonders in and through us. Help us to do that all the more because you are good and you are worthy of our trust and our affections. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.